I have the honor of introducing Kyle as he's our speaker today. Let me, let me pray for him. Father, thank you for Kyle, my, my brother and friend in Christ. And I just pray that you give him confidence and the boldness to proclaim your word. And, and that this word will encourage us, challenge us, and, and change us. And Father, we love you. Amen. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? All right. Hope everyone had a good week. Hope everyone's in good health. I know for me it's the second most wonderful time of the year. The first is Christmas. The second is NFL Playoff Sunday. So (laughs) Caitlin loves that as well. But I am definitely excited. You know, sitting there throughout the week and preparing the message and trying to think about what to speak on in beginning. I was observing my children, as I often do. You've heard me tell stories about them before. And Caleb is into this thing now that he calls chain reactions, where he makes something and then he makes another thing and another thing. And so you start in the first part and it falls and knocks the other one over and just creates this total snowball effect. And he made this cube out of Legos and he brought it to me. And he goes, hey, Dad, drop a marble in it. And you drop a marble in it. And the marble comes out a hole in the bottom. But it doesn't immediately come out. It takes like four seconds. So I'm thinking, what in the world did you do? So I took the top off. And he had made paths inside of it to where the marble follows and winds around all these paths before it finally comes out. And I'm thinking to myself, there is so much more to this than what it initially looked like. It looked like a Lego block. And so it is with the Word of God when we read through it. And we come across all these different stories, all these different people and events. There's usually always something lying under the surface that never struck us when we initially read it. And that is something that, as I've grown in my faith, I've just come to embrace over the years, is I have the personality type to where if I get fixated on something, I have to figure the answer out. I can't move on until I do. And part of that is personality, and part of that is also because I have the wonderful combination of ADHD and OCD, so (laughs) there's always a lot going on up here. But it takes forever to read through Scripture for me because when I do, I'm not just reading it. There's a hundred questions going through my mind. Why does it mention what he's wearing? Why is he walking east? Why is he coming from the west? Why is it mentioning that he's angry and sad? How's he both? Who's he talking to? Where's he talking to the mat? And it just keeps snowballing, right? And so when you look at at all the different stories, here's some examples of that. You look at the story of Melchizedek talking to Abraham. Well, okay, is Melchizedek just a high priest? Is that all that he is? Is that who he is? What do you think when you read that? What do you see? When you're reading through the Psalms and you see all these beautiful writings of David and others praising God, bringing glory to him, and lamenting and pouring their heart out before him. Yes, those are beautiful, but some of them are much deeper than that. Some of them actually have prophecies of Christ within them. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's talking about Jesus within that. And when Christ is talking to the Samaritan woman, is it important that he's talking to a woman, that she's Samaritan, and that they're standing next to a well? And the answer to all three of those questions is yes. 
So as you go through the Word of God, always be looking for what is happening because the Word of God is divinely inspired and the Word of God is constantly living. And there is a man in the Old Testament for the last six to eight months that I have just been, I don't know if you call it obsessed, I have just been pouring over his life. And that man is the man that we call Cain. Well, the story of Cain is much, much deeper than what we initially think, especially if you begin to pour into the Jewish tradition and everything that they get out of it and all the ways that it ties into the New Testament. Now, Cain is mentioned in the Old Testament twice outside of Genesis and three times in the New Testament. He's mentioned in First John, Jude, and Hebrews. And when you see him mentioned, ask yourself, why is he mentioned? What's the example they're using him for? And what are they teaching the people that they're using him as the example for. But what we're going to do today is we're going to begin by looking at Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, if you'll turn there with me. And the next couple times that we're together, we're going to focus on the life of Cain, the lessons to learn from him, the heart that he had, the actions that he took, and the way that he approached God. So to kind of prepare our minds for some of the things to look for as we read through the story of Cain, we're going to read Genesis 4, 1 through 16. First is that Cain is the story of our natural human nature and how we interact with God, the way that we naturally interact with God. But some of the finer points of interest about Cain is understand that Cain is the first human to exist entirely outside of the Garden of Eden. Cain is the first human to exist entirely outside of the Garden of Eden. He was born after Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden, and he had no memory of what that paradise was like. Cain was the first human to be comprised solely of flesh. Adam was made from the dirt. Eve was made from a rib from Adam. And Cain was made from the uniting of flesh, the first person to exist solely from flesh. So kind of keep these things in mind as we read through, and we'll start in Genesis 4, chapter 1, and we'll read through verse 16. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has been opened. It's 
which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face. I will be hidden and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, what are some of the finer points that are happening in the story, some of the deeper meanings? First, Cain destroys the image of God. Cain never repented of his sin, did he? Cain was allowed to speak with God directly after committing this egregious sin. Cain murdered Abel. Cain was warned by God of sin. And Cain's desires in every aspect was the exact opposite of God's. Now, what did God want originally when he created man? God wanted man to be in a garden and to gather food, to not know sin, to depend on God for everything, and to know love. But Cain displayed rage, and Cain brought forth death. Cain created a city and thus brought forth civilization. Now, if you continue to read, you'll see that God tells Cain to wander, and Cain ends up creating a city, and thus the first civilization is born. And that word, civilization, and what that is, is that not the main way that humanity rebels against God, is by civilization and man's laws and in our hearts superseding the law of God? Think about the laws of our land, of our civilization, of the United States. The laws state that it's fine for a same-sex couple to get married and that a child in the womb has no rights. That's the law of our civilization. And this is the first one that begins to come about. And if you continue to read on, you'll get into Cain's lineage and Cain's descendants. And you'll notice that as you read each one of their names, there's a skill that one of them has. They either are creating a tool or a metal worker or a musician and so on and so forth. And what you begin to see as Cain's descendants continue to come is that humanity is beginning to become self-reliant. They're beginning to provide everything for themselves and pull themselves away from God. And that is not at all what God wanted. That is the exact opposite. Now, when you read the story of Cain, you may be thinking to yourself that, This story has nothing to do with me. I'm not a murderer. I don't rebel against God, at least not on purpose. The things he did was way worse than me. And when I come before God in repentance, I do it with a willing heart. So as oftentimes when you're looking at the biblical stories that we hear of these men and women, break it down and look at it from the simplest of terms. What is the story of Cain? The story of Cain is the story of an unrepentant sinner who received undeserved grace and mercy. The story of Cain is the story of an unrepentant sinner who received undeserved grace and mercy. Now, does that story sound familiar to any of us? It should. Now, look at the story of Cain through another perspective, because Cain came before God 
but he never repented of his sin. Cain only came before God because he wanted his judgment lessened. He didn't want the consequences of his sin to be as severe as what they were going to be. Now, how many times have we done that, either in our past or when we were younger, or maybe even recently, we've done something horrible against a brother or against ourselves or something, and we come to God in repentance, but what we're actually doing is we're coming before him in self-preservation. We're coming before him because we are scared to death of what the consequences are going to be, and we do not want to go through them. We're coming before him in fear. But the verse that I want us to focus on today in the portion of Cain's life that we're going to be focusing on together is Genesis 4, verse 7. So let's read that together here. Genesis 4, 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Sin is crouching at the door and its desires for you, and you must master it. Now, when you read that and you see that word crouching, that is not crouching in the typical sense where you think of crouching down to work on something or crouching down to pull weeds, whatever it is. That is a very specific form of crouching. In the Hebrew, the word is robots, and what that means is the type of crouching that a predator does. The type of crouching that an animal of prey does when it is hiding and it is waiting to pounce on something. God is telling Cain that sin is like a wild beast and it is waiting to pounce on you. Now, before we continue to go on through all the examples in the Bible, before we get to the prophets speaking on sin and David and Jesus and the teachings of Paul, in its fundamental form, in its original description, God telling Cain of sin. He describes it as something that is crouching. He describes it as something that has a desire. And he describes it as something that must be mastered. And for all three of those things to exist, that thing must be living. God is describing sin as if it is something that is living. And it is active within our lives and within the life of Cain. Now because it is living... As with most things that are living, we as men think that we can oftentimes control our sin. We can have control over it. Yes, it might be bad, but I control when I can use it, when I don't, how I use it, and what it's used for. Okay, so let's look at two examples of that, right? Let's look at lust and anger. Because those are the two that are most often used by Satan to cause us to fall. When your husband goes out to work outside, to go to the machine shop, to head into town to buy some parts, whatever he's doing. And you sit down to read a book. Okay, there's nothing wrong with my wife sitting down and reading a book. Now, are you reading a book by Angela Kingsbury, or are you reading Fifty Shades of Grey? What is it that you're reading in those moments? Now, when your wife leaves, and she goes to the grocery store, and she takes the kids with her to go to the library, whatever it is, Do you pull your cell phone out? And if you do, what is it you're looking at while she's gone? Are you honoring her in those moments? Now, lust is something that's given to us by God, and it's something that can be a gift for those who are married, but can also be something that can be used incorrectly. And in those moments, we can justify our use of it, can't we? Because we can say, well, my husband's not here. He doesn't know what I'm reading. My wife isn't here. She doesn't know what I'm looking at. This isn't going to hurt them at all. But the truth is, it's something that we are hiding from them, and it's something that we are trying 
to justify because we know that it is wrong. And then look at anger, right? We can say that aggression is good. It's good for us to have aggression, especially if you're doing physical work. You walk out to split wood and you swing them all like this. You're not going to get very far, right? So you got to have a little bit behind it. But you can justify anger by saying that I only use it to defend myself. I only use it to defend others. I only use it in arguments to to make the other person listen. And we can come up with all these ways that we can use our anger. Well, okay, so when you're working on your car and you're replacing a spark plug, and your wife wants to joke around with you and she comes up and pokes you, and you jump and crack your head on the hood, <laughs> anger shows up. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> when your son is out stacking wood with you, Because he only wants to be with you and spend time with you. And somehow he pulls a piece of wood out and the entire stack collapses. Or when your daughter is helping your wife, she's learning her way around the kitchen and she pulls a a glass out of the dishwasher that your friend who died in a car wreck 12 years ago gave you as a gift. And she breaks it on the floor. Unintentional, of course. Or when you're a farmer... And a cow goes through the fence. Whatever the situation is, in those moments, anger shows up. Now, you said you had control of it. So why is it showing up in times when you didn't want it there, when you weren't expecting it to be there, and when you had no use for it? Why is it there? Why is sin constantly crouching and waiting on us? How is that possible? Now, remember, a few sermons ago, we talked about the teachings of Christ in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. And we said that Christ was talking to the disciples. And in verse 21, he tells them that from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, theft, murders, and adulteries. All of these come from the heart of men. And we use the example of David and Bathsheba. And we stated that, In that one act, David literally committed every single sin that Christ Jesus listed to the disciples in that moment. And it's not as if when you read the story of David that it states that David went up to the rooftop to try to find himself a woman. Like, that's not what it said. David went up to the rooftop and he turned and there she was. And in that unexpected moment, sin pounced on him and it caused him to go through unimaginable sins that he had never planned on committing. But it was there. And Christ continues to explain in verse 23 of Mark 7. All evil things proceed from within and defile a man. All evil things proceed from within and defile a man. We cannot escape sin and it is constantly there waiting to pounce on us because as sinners it is a part of us. It is within our heart. It is our natural nature to do these things that is why we need a savior and why we need the blood of christ because of how our nature is now when looking at uh, different theologians and what they had to say on genesis 4 7 i came across a man named alexander mclaren alexander mclaren is a very interesting man he was a preacher in the highlands of scotland from 1847 to 1903 but before he became a minister He was well known throughout northern Europe because in the university setting, he was such an amazing student of biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek. And when speaking on Genesis 4-7, he said that there's 
there's some wordage going on, some verbiage being used that we need to take note of. So if you will, look at Genesis 3, 16. Genesis 3, 16. Now what's going on here is the fall has happened and God at this moment is telling Eve of her punishment. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and pain. You will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then when you see verse seven, and if you do not do well, sin is for seven. I'm sorry. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Eve is told that her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. And Cain is told that sin's desire will be for you and you must master it. Now, the comparison here is not to compare woman with sin or anything like that. What you need to be noticing is the desire, the unity that is happening between man's heart and that which is desiring after him. Now, that word that's being used there is Tashuka, and it means a longing for. So just as woman has a longing for her husband, so sin has a longing for the heart of man. It is sitting there and it is waiting for you. And Alexander states that our sins act towards us as if they desire us to love them. Our sins act towards us as if their desire is for us to love them. And that makes sense because what is sin? Sin is preservation of self. Sin is lifting oneself up. Sin is caring for self over others. Most of sin is embracing of self. But if you look at the last part of Genesis 4, 7, God tells Cain, you must master it. You must master it. You must master this wild beast that is crouching and waiting. Now, I don't know what everyone's walk is like. But if you have ever tried without Christ to change yourself and make yourself a better person, it is impossible. Twelve years ago, I was not the most faithful Christian. I guess you would say I was having all sorts of issues with my life. And instead of turning to the Bible and prayer and the word of God, I started turning to philosophers and listening to all these lectures and seminaries or seminars and uh, podcasts where all these these atheists and agnostics were speaking and these philosophical professors, and they were all examining life, right? They were examining what is good, what is evil, is good universal, how does man know what good is, and just all these different questions. And so I was trying to mold myself into what I thought good is, and I am telling you, it cannot happen. No matter how hard I tried to make myself better, the same struggles that I continued to have continued to creep up in my life. I could not conquer them on my own. So then how do we master it? Well, the easy answer is that we can't. Only Christ can conquer sin. Only Christ can conquer sin. That is why he went to the cross, is to make the sacrifice to conquer sin. But Cain is not told to conquer sin. Cain is told to master it. To conquer something means that you completely get rid of it. To master it means that it will be there and it exists, but you must have some type of control over it. So how is it that we do this? How is it that Cain should have done this? And the simple answer is follow. 
follow, follow, follow. That's all we have to do as Christians is follow. And sometimes we, we make it so complicated, right? We put too much on our shoulders. It's almost as if we, we hold Christ up as if he's this, this model of moral perfection. And then we have to do all the work ourselves to make ourselves as close to him as possible. But that's not even close to being the answer. All we have to do is follow, read the word, pray, commune with other saints and believers, continually put his word on our heart. Christ tells the disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Deny yourself, take up his cross daily, daily and follow me, follow me. And don't forget that. Other than following him, Christ is always with us. He is always with us. We see this in the Psalms when we see Psalm 23, verse 2, he leadeth me by quiet waters. In verse 3, he leadeth me in paths of righteousness. And in verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. In times of peace and paths of righteousness, and in some of the valleys that we could never imagine would ever come into our life, Christ is there, and he is always with us. And it has always been this way. So read 4-7 with me one more time. Genesis 4-7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Now, in this moment, is Cain meditating and having some kind of enlightenment? Is he looking at his life and saying, oh, this is what's going on? No. What is happening in this moment? In this moment, before Cain commits a sin that throughout the annals of history will never be forgotten. Everyone knows Cain and Abel and the murder that Cain committed. Before this happens, God is with him. And God is warning him. There is a sin. There is a wild beast that is waiting to pounce on you. You must master it. God was with Cain. And God is still with us. The guidance of the Holy Spirit is something that we as Christians should relish. It's what separates us from the rest of the world. And one of the things I appreciate when George is up here preaching is that he almost always mentions the helper. The Holy Spirit that is promised to us in John 14 is that guiding force is what helps us go through the trials and tribulations. When you're about to get into it with someone at work and your tongue feels like it weighs five pounds or you feel like you're getting pulled back from the inside and you have to fight through it, that's the Holy Spirit stopping you. When your husband goes out to the tool shed or when your wife leaves to go to the grocery store and you pick up that book or you pick up that cell phone and you start getting all those things going through your head right now. They're serving you. Why are you doing this? This would hurt them if you knew it. Put it down. What do you think that is? That conviction is coming from the Holy Spirit in that moment. And it is on us to have the discipline to follow it. Follow it. Listen to it. Know that there is a beast in waiting for you. But know that with the Holy Spirit's help, you can master it. So in conclusion, as we wrap up looking at 4-7... I hope that one thing we take away from this is that sin is a part of us, and yet it is not of us. It is written on the hearts of man, and it is crouching, hidden beast waiting to attack us. 
But through the power of Christ's sacrifice and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can discipline ourselves as Paul did. And by following Christ and filling our life with his word and with prayer, we can fend off sin and allow Christ to conquer it, never falling prey to the temptation of self. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that you teach us within it. We pray that you continue to lift us up in the days ahead. We pray that you continue to guide us. We pray that you give us the strength to follow, Lord. No matter what the path is, Lord, may we follow you and may we trust you. May we continue to lift each other up in prayer and communion. Amen.